Section 4 of The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 3, December 1896. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jeff Rogers. The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 3, December 1896. Section 4, A Honeymoon Eclipse, by George C. Gardner. The endeavor, almost always made by a newly married couple, to hide, either from their friends or the world at large, the mental aberration inseparable from their new estate, is sure to result in failure. I tried it once myself, and I know. It was ever so long ago. We had been married only six weeks and were on our way to Washington. Eunice and myself had spent previous winters there, and should probably have gone there on our wedding trip if we had not, while living there, seen so many wedding couples wander aimlessly through the various government buildings, the prey of guides and objects of rather undignified interest to the rest of the population. So we waited till we thought we could safely appear a long time married, for then we didn't realize the hopelessness of deceit. Eunice's dearest friend, Alice Wendell, was in Washington too, and we were going to stay at the same house with her. It was, Alice said, an ideal place, a private family who took three or four personal friends for a slight compensation, and not at all like a boarding house, still less like a Washington one. In short, it was perfectly lovely in every respect. All of which, and more written by Alice, we hailed with delight, and found true in every particular. We finished our lunch somewhere between Chester and Wilmington, and, going into the buffet car forward for a smoke, I ran plump into Tommy Saunders, whom I hadn't seen for three years. We were old friends, and very warm ones. He was just back from Austria and on his way to report to the Agricultural Department on some improved cattle food or an irrigation scheme. It doesn't matter, and I don't remember. Anyhow, he was glad to get home, and anticipating with special pleasure, such is the sensuality of the male mind, a snug dinner that evening at the club with two friends who were awaiting him there. And you've got to make up the set, Freddy, said he. It'll be just the old crowd again. I've got a box at Alba's, and we'll get in in time to order extra fee for you. But, the deuce, I didn't think. You're a married man now, and only just, too. I had thought of it, though, while he was broaching the scheme. Thought it all out. It was just the opportunity. Miss Wendell was to meet us. She would take Eunice to the house. They would be able to talk it all over in peace. I should be Detro. A fellow always is under the circumstances. And then, the principle of the thing. For, as I say, we hadn't learned then the folly of deceit as to our newly weddedness. The principle was fine, and I knew Eunice would agree with me. So I said in an offhand way, Oh, that won't make any difference, if you are sure you want me. It's a go, then, said Tommy. Thank God, here's a man marriage hasn't spoiled. Take me back, that I may render thanks to your wife. We went back, and, as I had expected, she hadn't the least objection to the idea. We knew Alice so well that there would be no rudeness in the arrangement, and I could see that my wife approved, as I did, of the principle of the thing for she was foolish too. We found Miss Wendell at the station, and out of the general fracas which always ensues on the meeting of two dearest feminine friends, she finally grasped the situation. So Tommy and I got them into a hansom. I gave Eunice the checks. The baggage had been checked direct to your residence without extra charge. They departed, and we took a car for the club. I can't get over, said Tommy, as we four sat in a semicircle about a small table in the club smoking room. I can't get over a feeling of pride in your emancipation. I was afraid marriage might spoil you, but I owe you all possible apologies for ever misdoubting you. 
It is wonderful, wonderful, said Jim Ward. Stetson, almost thou persuadest me to become a husband. Only married six weeks, too, said Hardy. And if you'd seen him when he was getting wed, I always did admire Eunice. But I didn't know she was capable of this, for I don't think Freddy deserves all the credit. I know now that the pride which these comments aroused within me was an unholy pride, but I enjoyed it then. It was after eight when our cigars were ready for the short trip to Alba's, and as we went out to the single hansom, which Tommy had thoughtfully ordered, so we shouldn't be separated, I said that I really ought to join my wife. There was, of course, unanimous protest, but after reasoning with them for a moment, and explaining that it was politeness to Miss Wendell, whom none of them knew, and not a relapse into marital weakness, which moved me, they departed, leaving me upon the clubhouse steps. It was a beautiful evening at its most beautiful hour, when the crescent of the new moon turns from blue-white to silver as the sunset glow fades. From the doorsteps and from open windows on the street floated up little waves of laughter and the rise and fall of voices. Somewhere over in Farragut Square a street piano was playing. The scent of flowering trees and shrubs was in the air, together with the odor, dear by association to every Washingtonian's heart, of the watered asphalt pavements. Just this particular portion of the universe seemed vibrating and pulsating in every part, with a supreme quiet happiness. And then I bethought me that the one thing needed to complete the day was a quiet walk with my wife, as we had walked on evenings like this before we were married. And I went briskly down the steps, turned toward Fergus Square, and stopped, smiling to think that I had instinctively turned to go to her old home in Vermont Avenue. She wasn't there now, certainly not. She was with Alice, and Alice boarded with those people on 17th or 18th Street. And the number? The number I had flatly and fully forgotten. Also the name. I had seen them both at home. I had given the number to the expressman when the trunks were checked, and I knew it was somewhere between 1,000 and 1,800 and something. But what? In the confusion of meeting and parting at the station, I hadn't thought of it, nor, apparently, had anyone else. The street piano had trundled noiselessly over the asphalt, and now, squarely opposite, burst into the Boulanger march, with a crash and clatter that filled the street. I wheeled and fled. I would go down to Alba's and ask Tommy if he remembered Eunice's saying where we would stop. Then I hesitated. If there was any other way out of it, it would be a little too bad to let the fellows in, if it could be helped. There must be someone else. There was. I remembered now. The Williamses. They knew Alice and would, of course, know where she boarded. It took the nearest cabman twenty minutes to get me to their house. It took me three minutes to learn from a servant that the family were all at Deer Park for a week. I rode back Connecticut Avenue, wondering if I could tell the cabman that had carried Miss Wendell and my wife from the station if I saw him again. All handsome drivers looked alike. Still, the station was probably his regular stand, and on looking over the lot I might possibly recognize him. It was dark now. Pennsylvania Avenue was all aglitter with lights, the star and the Capitol lantern burning yellow at the end of the long perspective. There were only six hansoms at the station stand, and the drivers did all look alike so I made for the cab that stood third in the line for luck. Did you take two ladies from the 5.30 New York train this afternoon up to, er, 17th Street? said I to the driver. He looked at me longer than he needed before answering. Yes, sir, I did. Thank God, said I inwardly. To him, merely. Then you can take me there, too. Now I was sure by his look he was suspicious. All right, sir, said he. What number? It was perhaps a natural question but I didn't like his tone. Besides, it was an embarrassing question. You ought to know, said I. You've just been there. 
He was a very Solomon in his own conceit now. I could tell from his face. I've been to many places since, sir, said he. I decided upon a mollifying course. Just remember this number now and get me there quick, and I'll double the price, said I. Very well, sir, said he. I got in and we were off. I shook hands with myself and settled back in the hansom. As we turned the corner by the treasury building, his voice came gently through the slide in the roof. Was it 17th or 18th Street, you said, sir? You heard what I said, and you agreed to take me for double fare. If you talk any more, I'll take your number and report you first thing tomorrow for overcharging. Very well, sir, said he, with injured dignity. Only I understood you to say 17th, and the ladies, I just remember, was to 18th Street. I had said 17th, but this was no time to argue, so I merely said, Shut down that lid and go on to 18th. We drove on, turned into 18th Street, and drove northward, finally turning in and stopping just behind a coupe, a coupe standing in front of one of the new brick and terracotta Renaissance creations which were just beginning then to loom up in the northwest quarter of the town. The creation was brilliantly lighted, a carpet and awning joined it with curbing, and from the coupe, as my hansom paused, stepped two ladies, strange to me. Their wraps plainly indicated evening gowns beneath. And even as I saw this, a carriage, with clatter of hoofs and jingle of harness chains, closed in behind my hansom. I punched at the roof lid with my cane. I was mad. What the devil are you stopping here for? said I. These were the orders you gave me, sir, said he. You de- I began, but I realized I was hasty, and changed the sentence to, Who lives here? Secretary Jameson, sir. Is this where you brought the ladies? Yes, sir. Evidently the man was not lying. The gestures of a liveried individual under the awning intimated that we were blocking the way, for the coupe in front had departed. Get out of this and drive me down to Albaz, said I. Very well, sir. And with a resounding whip-crack, we swung around and started for the avenue. It wasn't any use. I might as well find the fellows, make a clean breast of it, and get advice. I arranged my features in as jaunty a manner as possible when I opened the door of their box, and they listened to my tale with the most grave and earnest attention. Not one of them even smiled. Jim Ward had a bad coughing fit, but it lasted only a moment. Tommy was the first to speak. I think, said he, I think, in fact I am sure, that I have a dead easy solution. We will begin at once, and we will all see you through. The show is slow here anyhow. Come on. But, he added, solutions of problems are dry work. And he looked at me. Yes, said I, they are. Come on, it's on me. Now then, resumed Tommy, when we stood on the sidewalk five minutes later. We will take a cab, drive to the station. Hush, as I opened my mouth in protest. Drive to the station, go to the baggage room and find out where two trunks that came in from Foxtown, Mass. on the 530 were delivered. Get the address, take you to it, get you safe inside the house, and then go back to the club and thank God we're bachelors. It was hard upon eleven when we reached the Pennsylvania baggage room to learn that the man in charge of the day lists of incoming baggage had gone home that his desk was locked, and that they couldn't no one else tell nothing about them lists. If anybody else in this crowd has a brilliant idea, said I, maybe Tommy will wet it for you this time. Say, said Ward, suddenly stopping as we started to leave the station, do you know Miss Wendell's family? I do, said I, and they're in Roxbury. All right, see if they got a telephone, and if they have, call them up. There's a long distance right over there across the waiting room. We all looked at Ward and each other. It was a grand idea. But it's a little late, I hesitated. Late nothing, he retorted. It's your only life. 
Come along and watch me. And he led the way to the telephone. The day of the hermetically sealed telephone booth was not yet in Washington, but the maiden at the desk looked bored enough to have been there for 50 years. Ward's interest was so great that when, after a few, hellos, Jersey City? Yes. No. What? No, no, no. Yes, Boston. Hello, Trunk. You did see him? When? Yes, keep off, New Haven. Say, Mame, give me Highlands. Tell him I won't. Yes? Wait a moment. The young woman, evidently considering Ward the principal, handed him the phone. He plumped into the chair and opened the conversation himself. That Mr. Wendell? Well, can you tell me your daughter's address? What? Where? Why, here. No, no, Washington. What? Washington. Washington, D.C. What? No, no, not street. D.C. A, B, C, D. A, B, C, C. Yes. Hold on, Central, let me talk. Yes? What? Why, this is a war. No, I mean, Mr. Stetson. Stetson. Yes. No, this isn't Stetson, but he wants to know Miss Wendell's address. Wants to find his wife. Hello, get that? No, wife. No, wife. He can't go home. Hey, say, get off this line. I'm talking for Stetson. He can't remember where he wants to go to. Here, said I, for heaven's sake, give me that phone. The fifty years of boredom had totally disappeared from the young lady operator. Her face displayed a lively interest. Good evening, Mr. Wendell, said I. His voice came faintly back. What's the matter with Alice? Nothing. I want her address. I came on today with... Hold on, I didn't catch that. Say it again. My wife's with Alice, and I wanted... Say, stop ringing, will you? Hello? No, no, her address. Where she lives. Just repeat that once more. Here a sweet feminine voice broke in. Did you get them, Washington? Yes, I roared. Say, repeat for me, won't you? And after I had instructed it, the voice caroled. He wants your daughter's address, so as to get home. He don't know where to go to find his wife. Then the first voice, tell him I don't remember the number, somewhere up in the northwest quarter on 17th or 18th streets. Name sounds like car or bar. Tell him I'll wire it in the morning. Can't get it now. Anything? Five minutes are up, broke in a third voice. Hello, from the second voice again. Name sounds like bar. Yes. Say, Washington. What? Then dead silence. The young lady said, 350, gave Tommy a baby stare, and we left the room. Someone on 17th or 18th. Name sounds like Bar. That's easy, said Ward. Now then, driver, to the last cabman left alongside the curb, just hustle us up to the parallel club. Yes, all of us. We're light. There's nothing like a telephone. Wasn't that an idea of mine, though? Gee. For the body of the cab had collided with the axle as we crossed the car tracks. We'll just take the directory and look up the bars and the cars and the dars and, and so on that are on 17th and 18th. And there you are, slick as a whistle. We unloaded ourselves onto the pavement in front of the club as a young man came down the steps. It was just midnight. Hello, Groton, said Tommy. Morning, Tommy, said he. You're laid back from Alba's. Yes, been driving around a little since, said Tommy. You know Groton? Beg pardon. Mr. Groton? Mr. Stetson. Mr. Stetson of Foxtown? The same, said I. Your wife's looking for you, said he. She has just come to stay with Miss Wendell, has she not? And my aunt's, Mrs. Stars? She said you were to be at the club for dinner, and that I might perhaps meet you and bring you home. I shall be delighted to go with you, said I. End of section four. Read by Jeff Rogers.